definitely. I think I've struggled with that a little bit as far as like, um, you know, I think we call it imposter syndrome in mm -hmm. med school and thinking, oh man, like all these other kids in my class are so serious about being doctors and here I am like taking two extra years to do triathlon and maybe I'm not as serious as them. Maybe I'm not as dedicated. And, um, and I think that, that, took me it has taken like a little bit of grappling with um mm -hmm. me. and I think I've I've like come in it's easier now that I've gone through the match and I you know got a great you know match and a great outcome so it makes it seem you know validating but I think um it was a little bit hard for me to balance like those two identities and say you know I can have these two things that are both really important to me and that doesn't make me like a lesser future doctor or or a lesser, you know, triathlete and um, and I can be both. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Uh, today on the show, I have a special guest who is referred to me from one of our other guests, Todd Buckingham, who we'll talk about here in a minute. She's a former collegiate runner, former Cat 1 cyclist. As an amateur, she was uh, the USA Triathlon National Champion, currently racing as a professional triathlete for Purple Patch Fitness and Matt Dixon. And uh, as of today, finishing uh, medical school, getting ready to start residency. So welcome to the show, Cecilia Davis-Hayes. Thanks so much for having me, Jesse. So first, we got to give you congratulations for <laughs> finishing off the end of medical school. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's exciting at long last. Um, it's come come to a close. So we just finished our like ready for residency course, which is like the final month, and they kind of synthesize all the high yield information we're going to need when we start our residency in a couple of weeks. So uh, that kind of made us feel a little bit more prepped and ready, ready to go. Cause it's a little, it's also, you know, it's a big accomplishment, but it's also really scary because it means you're going out into the real world and you're no longer a student and someone actually is going to call you doctor now. So yeah. <laughs> that's uh, a big step. So have you, um, I've forgotten the like timeline. Have you put in your bids residency and done the matrix and all that yet? Yeah, the matrix. That's funny. Um, yes. Yeah, I have. So um, back in on March 15th, so a little over a month ago, we found out our match. So um, it's for those people who don't know the medical field. It's basically you go on it's this long application process and you interview at a, a bunch of programs and then you rank the those hospital programs in the order of your preference and then they rank you and it puts it into this whole algorithm that comes out and spits out your match um and so yeah that's so we all know where we're going for next year so i'm not too dramatic but i'm staying in uh in new york city going across town a little bit to the east side to um while cornell uh, medical center which is sort of affiliated my program's affiliated with um the cancer hospital there memorial sloan kettering and then the kind of orthopedic hospital um hospital for special surgery so okay that'll be my next uh five years a five okay so yeah you definitely got some time there you are um my college roommate did his match and he has a wife so they were both trying to match together is it just you or no extra strings attached <laughs> so that yeah that's the couples match and right a lot of people do that um and it's extra stressful but uh luckily no i didn't have to go through that i do have a partner fiance who's in in medicine as well but we were kind of staggered so he's okay. a bit ahead of me so that makes it easier he can kind of follow me um you know or he, he has a good job here that he just started so that was one of the reasons why we ended up deciding to stay in new york good deal yeah i know i i know for him it was a lot of stress and they actually ended up in two different cities she was in in, in indianapolis and he was in baltimore so it, it didn't quite work out so i was hoping you didn't have to go through the same thing yeah it turned out okay for me <laughs> So I, I think I read um, you're deciding to specialize in radiology. That's correct. So what I mean, what what draw drew you into radiology in particular? 
Yeah, so it was a tough decision for me. I really liked all the specialties in medicine during my clinical rotations. You have to do, of course, like general um, internal medicine and primary care and obstetrics and surgery and neurology. And you have to get a sprinkling, you know, exposure to all these specialties. And I really liked everything. After all the um, rotations, I thought, you know, I could do this, I could do that. So it was a tough decision for me. Um, But I think it came down to, really who seemed the happiest in their career so the doctors who I spoke Mm -hmm. to at like further out stages I think that was uh gave me the most information um to make a good decision because it's really hard to tell from the limited exposure you have as a student what that life is really going to be like and what that career path and the people and and I kind of always had been intrigued by radiology and thought that oh this kind of neat this really powerful tool right like think about how often particularly athletes but of course any patients are relying on like oh what's the result of the MRI what's the result of the CT scan like you're mm-hmm. the one who gets to kind of determine that so it felt really important um so I always knew that in the back of my head and then I took a month-long rotation in it and saw how happy these people were and and had great job satisfaction um, and like longevity of interest in their um, field, which was very appealing to me because I think I was a little scared that the high rates of burnout in other fields and and, um, and I wanted to avoid that if possible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, is there anything like, is there a specialty? Like, so you have to apologize that, you know, I'm only <laughs> so, like surface level familiar basically through- Your roommate. Um, <laughs> through my roommate, you know, so we, he's, he's in, uh, PM and R. Okay. So like we get to talk sometimes cause I'm like, I messed this up. What do I do? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and he's just finishing his residency actually. But uh, anyway, like, is there anything like a specialty in radiology, like that, that interests you or just the field as a whole because of that satisfaction? Yeah, um, there are, it's a pretty diverse field, which right. people don't, you know, like any field in medicine, you can almost create your niche within it. And right. so um, there are a couple areas that are especially appealing to me. There's sort of, I could keep the sports theme alive with doing like a musculoskeletal Mm-hmm. radiology path which um, they actually do quite a few procedures like in <clears throat> injections and like arthrograms which kind of like injecting dye and then taking mm-hmm. a picture um and uh like ultrasound guided you know steroid injections and things like that um and then interpreting like these really complex like a you know a foot mri very detailed and um so that is definitely appealing to me and you know continue i could work with athletes i think i went into med school thinking maybe i would want to do some sort of sports medicine that ended up didn't end up being like such a good fit for outright to do like orthopedics or mm-hmm. Care sports medicine. I thought about those things, um, so that would be one option. The other, really, um, I had a men- mentor in medical school who's a breast radiologist. So they do a lot of like the biopsies for you know women who have a suspicious mass, and mm-hmm. then um, even yeah. Um, so and and even are kind of able to see these patients throughout the course of their illness and have a little bit more of a relationship. So I think that's the, that's pretty appealing because one downside of radiology is that you, you might not have as much like patient interaction. If you're reading scans from your reading room, you might not um, have an opportunity to have as much of that interaction. So I think that the breast radiology is on the end of the spectrum that's a little bit more involved. So I guess those two are appealing, but it's, it's, um, something I'll have so much more um, opportunity to explore in, in those five years and kind of make a more informed decision at that point. But You don't really have to like specialize until several years from now, or is it even after residency? Do you... Yeah, I mean, you don't really even need to. There are general radiologists who do everything. Right. Um, I think in a city, in a big city like New York, you really need to put you know, your hat on and say, I am X type of radiologist only does, you know, you a service, it seems like to, to kind of market yourself as such and mm-hmm. have a specific like expertise. But um, I know plenty, you know, doing all these interviews in different places, I interviewed all over the country and talk to people at say like University of Colorado and University of Utah who were going straight into practice after residency mm-hmm. and um and doing it all so that's kind of you know that's that's certainly an option if you want to move to like a more rural place yeah okay so so that kind of leads me to like 
the elephant in the room, I guess, because I, I think I heard you, um, I think it was the, the interview you did with your coach for his podcast, yeah. um, talk about taking, no, I could have read it. I tried to do some background research on you. Um, <laughs> talking about taking uh, time off from medical school just to race. Mm-hmm. So I think the elephant in the room now is, are you on pause for residency? Are you going to like try to continue racing at the professional level or like, what's the plan? Yeah. Um, yeah. Big, big question in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly sort of been the question for me for a number of years, really since I started uh, competing at a, at a high level first in cycling about maybe six years ago and um, competing, I competed in the tour of California and mm-hmm. some, um, bigger stage races and um, <clears throat> and then found triathlon and had you know pretty immediate success like you said I was won age group nationals my um, after do doing after being a you know swimming for less than a year and mm-hmm. less than, like six months into triathlon so it's kind of immediate success and I had um, was in the middle <clears throat> of med school and I kind of had to face this decision of do I like proceed with the um, course at least resistance as far as my you know academic training and um and sort of have to leave triathlon as a second and as an afterthought or do I kind of devote more time to it and and sort of craft my schooling you know with with triathlon in mind and I ended up doing the latter and like I said on um the purple patch podcast I was able to take two extra years of med school you know sort of it was time off but I really was a full-time student um still doing research so Mm. I was able but that's much more flexible than you know you could imagine um sort of do a lot of the research from from wherever you have your laptop (laughs) as opposed to like the clinical rotations where you really have to be in the hospital so um yeah so that was kind of my um, gift to myself of hey, this is really important to me. I'm having a lot of success at this. Like, let's take some time to focus on this and sort of an, a focus on triathlon. And there was sort of an unknown as to what would happen after that. I thought, mm-hmm. oh, maybe I won't. Um, maybe I won't keep getting better, and, and then I'll make the decision easy. Um, or maybe I won't feel like doing it anymore, and you know that'll make the decision easy. Um, and I think, in night, luckily, neither of those things have happened. I um, really excited about it and I'm racing now um the fourth year med school in the spring is sort of a little bit like senior spring so you have pretty much time to race so I've gotten in a couple I've already raced twice and then I have St. George coming up this weekend and I'll be mm-hmm. able to race two more times before my internship starts in um in June so I yeah I guess I kind of to answer your question directly I don't know <laughs> if I'm gonna keep able to keep racing but That's I fair. Yeah, I've got to see how much um, extra, or, you know, how much spare time uh, I have outside of the hospital, and if mm-hmm. I will be filling that time with swimming, biking, and running, or if I want to be filling that with, you know, other things. Uh, so, this is this is kind of a sensitive question for some um, people with their coaches. So, like, if you don't want to share this, that that's okay. But like, what kind of like training load are you doing hours wise right now? Yeah. Um, no, that's fine. I can definitely answer. Um, so, you know, funnily enough, I don't track my hours. So I like, mm-hmm. actually have no idea. I could probably give you an estimate. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, I know, like I, I'm roughly like eight to 10 hours a week. Cause I've brought my load down. I don't, I don't pay attention to it every week, but just like as yeah. a general sense. Roughly, roughly. Yeah. Um, probably more like, 12 to 15 mm-hmm. yeah um so i have a fair amount really in the last you know with those two year research years and then even in this last year i basically took i, I came back and did my like fourth year from kind of march last year in march 2018 to May 2019 and in that time I you know I had commitments but it was never a really grueling schedule so I was really able mm-hmm. to have quite a bit of time to train and race and travel to race so yeah I think I'm on the probably on the lower end for sure of the you know professional athletes that my coach coaches were in the professional athletes in general for sure mm-hmm. but um I've always been sort of a less is more type of person in the philosophy right. 
And I feel like that that's always worked for me. We were talking about before we went on live that I was uh, ran in college, but never was able to make it more than halfway through the season without having some sort of injury or some sort mm -hmm. of thickness or anemia or something. And um, I think doing less running for sure and having the variety of the three sports has really helped me to stay healthy so well of course 12 to 15 hours sounds like a ton for um a lot of folks out there for you know the people girls i'm towing the line against is not a, is not a ton <laughs> right yeah no it's yeah i mean even i guess for some perspective like um the last few years i was working out like 15 to 17 hours a week right. Yeah. And doing 70.3. Actually, we were both out at Eagle Man this last year, although oh. you wouldn't know that, and I didn't know at the time. Okay. Um, and we're racing similar speeds. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, I, it's kind of like uh, like my coach said in, in the episode with him that, you know, there's many ways to make a pizza. You can make a, pizza, a good pizza very, you know, many different ways. So yeah. it seems like your load is probably – more reasonable i was just concerned if you were going to say oh i'm working out 20 25 hours a week it's like if you have to maintain that kind of load to keep mm. the kind of fitness it's yeah. going to just be mania trying to cram that in with anything else really yeah yeah for sure i think if no matter what um i'm gonna have to cut down somewhat and it's just a matter yeah. of whether i'm mm -hmm. able to um yes if to to kind of squeeze it in in a way that makes sense like am I able to um you know do a running commute I'm at my hospital the where I'm going to do my my um internship year is like five miles away so can I like run both ways and mm -hmm. I don't know get in the training there and kind of um craft or and maybe all I'll feel like doing when I come home from the hospital is going for like a bike ride and maybe that'll work yeah. Or like, it's so hard to predict, you know, what you're going to be like, what your life circumstance If you know, talk to people who yeah, have kids and they're like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to compete after I have a kid. And some people can go totally one way. They're like, oh, what I want to do when, you know, daddy's taking care of little Benny is like, go work out. And other people who are like, I can't leave him, you know, or I want to just go watch movies while I have my time, you know, time to myself. So it's, it's funny how you, know, you can't really, as much as, of course, triathlon is like really important to me. And I've had so much satisfaction training and racing and I love it. Um, love the community. It's, it would be like foolish, I think to say, Oh, of course I'm going to keep doing it. Like I'm going to make it work because that would just right. be sort of unrealistic. So I'm kind of curious, like, since you've, I mean, you changed sports several times, runner to cyclist to triathlete, and then like doing the med school thing. So this is something I always had trouble with. So maybe um, I'm hoping you could uh, help me and maybe anybody listening. Like, how do you deal with the mental side of like changing priorities and saying, you know, trying to balance like what is the priority? And, and like, just because I, I kind of think about it in the sense that like, my my identity was I'm a runner, but then it's like when I'm not just running anymore. Now I'm a triathlete. Am I a triathlete? Like, how do you deal with that that kind of changing priority mentally? Hmm. Yeah, I guess I really at each step I've kind of um, just dove in head first and like put on the triathlon goggles and like this I, i'm in guys like this is i'm you adopt me i'm like here i'm all in and it was that way too i started out as this like soccer player was my first love and like i was you know all into that and then it was like okay soccer's gone and now i'm all into the next thing so and same with um when i got into cycling i didn't run a step for like three years it was like mm -hmm. i'm i'm a cyclist now like this is it um and and then sort of yeah it was a little bit different when i went from cycling to triathlon because obviously you still are um doing that sport yeah. yeah i guess i've always been really strongly um uh like very com very competitive but in a yeah in a very like goal goal oriented way and um and looking forward to like perfecting the recipe of a new sport and like mm -hmm. learning 
how, um, you know, how I was going to go about that. And with this, with triathlon, it was like, okay, how can I become, um, teach myself to swim and how can I, you know, um, get the best advice and go and kind of, uh, yeah, work on the form and have fun with it still. And so, yeah, I guess I, it's, it was a great question that you asked, but I've never really thought about it quite like that. <laughs> I've never had an identity crisis. I think I've just like stormed in the room and been like, guys, like I'm here, like I'm doing this like can I join your swim group you know well um, maybe that's I mean maybe that's the whole solution is just like don't hesitate like if you decide that's what you're gonna do just do yeah. it wholeheartedly you know yeah, yeah definitely I think I've struggled with that a little bit as far as like um you know I think we call it imposter syndrome in mm -hmm. med school and thinking oh man like all these other kids in my class are so serious about being doctors and here I am like taking two extra years to do triathlon and maybe I'm not as serious as them maybe I'm not as dedicated and um and I think it, that that took me it has taken like a little bit of grappling with um mm -hmm. me and I think I've I've like come in it's easier now that I've gone through the match and I you know got a great you know match and a great outcome so it makes it seem you know validating but I think um it was a little bit hard for me to balance like those two identities and say you know I can have these two things that are both really important to me and that doesn't make me like a lesser future doctor or or a lesser you know triathlete and um and I can be both and I just need to like on the day-to-day -day, they're they sort of are competing you know um mm -hmm. But you have to, yeah, I guess just as the, as the choices come at you, you know, am I going to get some extra sleep because I stayed up late working on an assignment or am I going to get up for masters at 530? You know, each of those decisions, of course, comes at you like day after day, multiple mm -hmm. decisions a day, even that are micro, you know, um, level. And I think I find that challenging for sure like what, what's the bigger priority like what's the right thing to do here and I think that yeah it's tough yeah I mean I it for for whatever it's worth I, I would say say like grappling with that kind of imposter syndrome like I guess my advice or hopefully uplifting moment for <laughs> you would be like you're working on being the best Cecilia you can be not the best like Jim or Susan or whoever like yeah. uh, the the thing I kind of have embraced over time because I'm in a little bit of everything like I do a little bit of this I do a little bit of that like um it, it not to make light of mental illness it's almost like ADD I don't have ADD but it's, it's that kind of very flitting from one thing to another but also wanting to master everything yeah I, I kind of like embrace it in the sense that like sometimes you don't know where those experiences are going to lead you and those unique experiences will help you later on in ways that you don't necessarily have the ability to see now. Yeah. So like, yeah. I guess that would be my moment of encouragement for you is like, I think that those experiences will probably come together later at a time where you'll go, ah, you'll see things a certain way that nobody else can see because of the journey you've been on. Mm, I like that. I like that. <laughs> so, um, you do make me wonder though, if, uh, do you find that, you're somebody who gets bored after you've like climbed that climbed the mountain like you've got to the top and you're like okay on to the next mountain great question yeah when you said you're someone who you know you've done lots of different sports and um and I, I, I kind of, it made me think of that, man, am I just someone, do I, do I just have like a short attention span and I just like looking for the next challenge? But I don't think that's my story. I think really like how I see it, at least in sports realm of things was I wanted to be like the best soccer player. I wanted to be Mia Hamm and Christine Lilly and Brianna Scurry, like all together. Mm -hmm. I just went out for like the Olympic development team. I didn't make it. I was like, crushed and then I, I kind of had this realization my sophomore year of high school I was like man I don't think I'm ever gonna be a really good soccer player like I'm good but I'm not like you know excellent and with that and I you know rationally was like okay that's probably true I think I can't fight it and then and then I found running like my you know junior and senior year of college and I you know ran like five minute mile and I was like okay I'm like pretty good at this running like this could be it like let's go for it and um and then the same thing with running you know, didn't go very well in college I never really you know felt like I got to the top of the mountain mm -hmm. and recycling I guess I felt like right when I was when I was sort of getting there um 
I um, I always was um, I was just really scared by the the kind of danger aspect, particularly of the cycling racing, being with the pack, and um, and I had a bad crash, and so I think I sort of never felt like that was really the right fit, even though like physically for me it's my strongest sport, like it still is in in um, triathlon. The cycling is my best event, um, but it never it really um, wasn't right for me. So I think, and then when I found triathlon, it was finally like wow okay and I'm really good at this cycling thing I can keep doing that um running I'm now such a better runner now that I don't run all the time Mm -hmm. and and the swimming wow swimming you know that became a little easier than I thought and it was it so it was like wow this is my right sport and this is what I can be good at so it was really more rather than switching because I felt like I'd you know done my business it's more like yeah, I had this really desire to not, you know, I'm competitive, but it's more like I wanted to see the recipe for success, like for myself and how I could um, sort of master a sport and mm-hmm. get to the highest level. And um, and then I think I finally found it with triathlon. So I would think that, you know, barring um, if I if I had a, um, the opportunity to keep training and racing I don't think I would get bored with it I think um it yeah there's there's so much so many ways to improve in the sport because it's so complex so I think Mm -hmm. yeah but we'll see (laughs) right um so I'm kind of going back a little bit thinking about kind of your training hours although it does vary in this too I'm curious why it seems like you focus more on like 70.3 yeah so I'm curious why you decided to go 70.3 instead of ITU since you had that initial, you know, had pretty good success. It sounds like on the swim, swim front, and that's pretty important ITU wise. Like, was there a, a big reason why you decided to go non-draft instead of draft or? Yeah. Yeah. There were a couple reasons. So I definitely, of course, I think like many people who have initial success in the sport, they think, Oh, go ITU. I know. Um, uh, another purple patch girl who's quite a talent, Chelsea Sadaro, who um, I met um, this past winter at a training camp, who just started, switched. She did, she did a season of ITU and then now is going long course. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, she, she, uh, we kind of uh, discussed what her reasons were. And I think mine were, um, yeah, the, the swim definitely wasn't, yeah, is, is, is not strong, strong enough by any mm-hmm. means. I think I was like a little deluded at first because I was having a pretty good upward progress that, oh, I could get there. And then I think the more and more I learned about like what, how consistently fast these ITU girls swim, I think it really is prohibitive. I think there might be an exception or two to this rule, but by and large, girls who are competing in those, you know, World Cup races have either a college or a high school or like at least some sort of summer club team swim background when they Mm -hmm. were a kid. And I think you really can't replace that. It's one of those things that, you know, if you learned how to to move your body like that as a kid, it's really hard to play catch up. And there there are exceptions and there are people who become very good swimmers, but not like not enough to make those packs, which is essential. And then for the bike ride for the ITU, it's really, it's, uh, it's conversely like not essential. You know, you can mm-hmm. be like an okay bike rider. And I think my strength wouldn't really um, come to, wouldn't really help me very much in the ITU racing because of the non, um, because of the drafting. Uh, I really couldn't um, make my, uh, the distinction compared with other riders. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, and then I guess the other thing is that the, um, it's really hard to get into the ITU racing because it's so, um, it's spread out across the, uh, across the world and across this country, even these like entry level continental cup races that you need to do to get points to go to the world cup. Um, they are in sort of in uh, not very accessible and mm-hmm. there's bunch of age groupers who are going to them so it's not sort of as much of an event and it's not as well organized so there's a lot of it's a little um less exciting if you know what I mean like less mm-hmm. um, less of an event and you know to contrast that with Ironman where you have you know 2,000 to people who are competing on the same day and mm-hmm. they 
put you up in a homestay and and the events fun. So it seemed like there was a lot of um, a lot of things pointing me in the in the direction of the uh, non drafting races. And I would love to do more Olympic races. Honestly, I like that distance. I think it's nice to have like a two hour event. I love mm-hmm. the like the city races, Philadelphia try, New um, New York City try, like DC Nations try. I thought those were awesome events. And um, unfortunately, they're either getting, I don't know if they're losing funding or there's some sort of issue with putting them on because of the city, but they seem to be a dying breed, unfortunately. So, Yeah, I kind of have a similar, like, I, I ended up going 70.3 just because I was also not as great a swimmer mm-hmm. um, and trying to get that pro license. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to have success at 70.3 and still didn't quite make it, but um yeah kind of of similar reasons yeah so like like an eagle man i came out of the water like a half hour which is okay you know it's it's, it's decent but it's not like even the the pros 70.3 they'll be coming out of the water 25 minutes or under for that distance so yeah uh, Yeah. that's just how that goes sometimes yeah um even like my best race I had like a couple weeks ago in Peru and um, I did 29 minutes for the swim and came out like four and a half minutes behind the leader. And that's mm-hmm. still a large deficit. And I almost made it up on the bike, almost yeah. got her, but um, that's, it's, it's, it's somehow even on such a short amount of time, you can make up such the good swimmers can just make up such a good chunk. It's really mm-hmm. hard to chase back. So even in 70.3. So I kind of want to go back, um, if you give a little bit of history on like the cycling crash and what happened there, I kind of have like a follow-up question there. So if you tell that story a little bit, just yeah. so the viewers yeah. have I think a it's history. To, to hear, because not enough people seem to talk about their, how dangerous a sport cycling racing is. And I know like it is a beautiful sport. There's nothing more awesome to watch than the Tour de France, but I think when I entered the cycling community, it seemed to be just like this elephant in the room that was like this really big kept secret that like people have really serious injuries that are like caused by racing. And Mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, yes, of course there's the danger of training and cars and all that. We have that in triathlon too. But, um, that was something for me, I think, I don't know if I would have gotten as serious about the sport if I'd really been, aware of like how frequently these like devastating you know crashes can be um so yeah happy happy to talk about it um and and uh so yeah i was having having a great season doing a lot of races as cyclists do like racing you know three times a weekend crazy stuff Mm -hmm. and really into it and it was actually a local race where i had a bad crash in um in central park um it was um, I was in, you know, of course there's these preems that are located at, um, like checkpoints along right. the way and there was a preem, so we'd sprinted for it. And then often a good place to get in a breakaway is right after the preem, you sort of counterattack. Mm-hmm. So, um, I had done that to the counterattack after the preem. I think I got a gap behind me and then one other girl who I knew was the other, what I thought was the strongest other girl in the race besides me. And uh, looked back and looked like we'd we'd both gotten gotten away. So we got a gap from the group, which is how you sort of establish a breakaway. Right. So um, I take a hard pull in the front, and then I um, I elbow her to to come around me, and she can take a hard pull, and you know we establish this breakaway. And so she came in front of me, and um, and then she kind of led up and I wasn't sure, I think either she was looking behind her, you know, when you kind of look behind yourself, you, you'll either swerve a little bit or you, um, you maybe won't pedal as hard because you're looking behind something like that happened. Anyway, we were going like, it wasn't no downhill or anything. We were going on a flat, probably 25, 30 miles an hour. And Mm -hmm. I just, you know, it just, it wasn't even raining. It wasn't wet. It wasn't a pothole. You know, it's just a bike race. And like I was redlining. So was she, I hit her back wheel and, you know, I think we overlapped wheels like this a little bit and Mm -hmm. my wheel just, you know, snapped at 90 degrees on another day. I might've skidded and had some road rash and been fine. But of course, but you know, you, you get only get lucky um, sometimes. And so I, I went down really hard. I my, my bike kind of, cause the wheel seemed to lock up. I just like got kind of thwacked to the ground and I broke my pelvis in five places and mm. 
my yeah my um sacrum and my pubic bone and my collarbone and had some internal bleeding and um yeah, I think the coolest part was that I had the um, my number pinned on pinned on my jersey, of course, and then somehow in my rolling and tangling, one of the safety pins had come loose from the jersey and like impaled itself in my arm, like sticking <laughs> like this. So I was like, guys, look! I'm like, it was like that Halloween trick where you have mm-hmm. a knife over your head. <laughs> it was like, look at my arm! I have a safety pin growing. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I was really lucky because none of it ended up being like lasting injuries. Um, I didn't right. have surgery or like you know um, the bleeding was controlled on its own and everything. Um, but I did have to stay in the hospital a couple days, and it was scary. And I had to get like you know pan scanned, as we say, medicine, a, a CT scan of your entire body to make sure there's you know in a high speed trauma you have to do that. Um, and it just made me really like reconsider what, um, yeah, what, what I was going to do with my sporting life. And I think I thought right after that, that I might not get on a bike again, but that didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of came up with the fact that triathlon might be a good, um, fit. Um, you know, if I wanted to keep biking, I, I knew it was a lot safer. So. Yeah. So I'll kind of try to give the short version. Um, I keep bringing up Eagle man. I did this on purpose, uh, cause I wanted to talk about your crash. Cause I actually crashed eagle man so in case you look me up that was one of my only dnfs oh shoot so i was you know i had a really good day for me uh coming across the like 25 mile mark at like an hour one which matches like my best 40k ever yeah um and around like 26 27 coming around a curve a guy starts passing me on the inside of the curve and forces me out and i just hit a patch of gravel or something i don't know and just went down and broke my collarbone so i was not as bad off as you were yeah um but i know that you know through the whole thing and you know having surgery because it like my bones split down the center and then a piece broke off so like it was a whole involved thing again you had it well way worse (laughs) um but i know like getting back on the bike you know especially uh, I, I raced a couple, I guess it was early March and it was windy out. And like, I felt, I call it squirrely, but it's like that little bit of anxiety. Like, did you have any anxiety like post-crash, like getting back on the bike and out? Yeah, def- definitely, definitely did. Um, and I think it's really common what you're talking about. Feel squirrely is a good word to describe it. You just mm. you're like hyper aware, you're like on your brakes and probably doing yourself a disservice because what you really need to do is right. just relax, right? right. Um, <laughs> but that's easier said than done. Um, yeah, so uh, I think, you know, time heals many wounds, um, mm-hmm. our bodies and our minds. And I think, um, yeah, I did certainly am more tentative than even that. That crash was for, was July 21st, 2014. So five years ago. Um, and And I think I still am more cautious and conservative even like I think about the fact that you know in race in the um, I biked at 214 at, in Peru which is my ba- best time the other week mm-hmm. and I still thought about multiple times in the race I said I could do this faster right now if I say you know like that guy did to you cut somebody on the inside of the turn to get around mm-hmm. it a little faster or if I um don't slow down break a little bit or um to get over this like lip in the road or you know whatever it might be mm-hmm. and I make the conscious decision to say hey I know what I'm doing is resulting in a little bit of a time penalty but it's um the safer way and I think you just have to have to think like that's just not worth it and I think you know some people may be able to determine that for themselves before having an experience like like the crash but I think I always just you know have that to go back to in the back of my mind like that's it's going to be like that if you even just one little small thing all it takes is a one corner or one piece of gravel you didn't see and Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the line between you know, having a great race and uh, staying upright and and not it's so small. It can be like anything. You know, if you ever do you ever catch yourself having like gone over a little pothole and you like didn't see it and you're like, oh, holy crap! Like, thank 
that I'm still, how did I miss that? Yeah. You know, and those are the times you got lucky. Um, and I don't know, riding bikes is one of the most fun things in the world, but it's also, you know, you're living on the line. So I think you, it's a sort of a healthy, um, uh, caution that comes after having a crash like that. I, for the most part, I think, you know, I'm sure you've gotten a little less squirrely since, uh, that first ride back. Yeah. The, the, I have, um, zip 808s. So like a little bit, like the wind pushes on those wheels, you know, I don't have the deep, the deep disc in the back, which would really push it around. But like some of it's just the difference between having the training wheels on and then having the aero wheels on, which do get more side push when you have that, that crosswind yeah. and just getting knocked around a little bit. And this last winter was cold. I'm in the Midwest. So okay. this last winter was cold enough. I didn't really get to get outside much. Yeah. Mostly because it gets cold enough that my water bottles freeze. So I, I can't go out. <laughs> 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 it's not that I wouldn't, but the physics doesn't play to my my advantage. So then I, you know, just sitting on the trainer all winter, you know, you don't get that those like micro movements in and all the stabilization and like just being used to adjusting for a little pushes of wind here and there and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of that culmination of post crash and then not being able to be on the bike as much. Yeah. Yeah, I think that speaks to the importance of like getting out on your race setup, you know, with your mm -hmm. eight, like with whatever your race wheels are and really riding in that and like riding and, you know, riding it a couple times in race conditions. I think that's, um, you know, something that definitely can throw you on race day if you if you haven't done that. So something I've tried to be better at um, recently, even if it means like, oh, I'm getting my disc dirty or I'm riding it in some on, you know, a training ride and people think I'm like, you know, a tool or something. You're like, you know what? This is, <laughs> is worth it to go and uh, test it out. So Yeah. Um, it's kind of like a uh, down another rabbit hole. But like, have you seen um, like the F1 kids race? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like, no. it's like part of the development pipeline. So it's like, um, if you ever go to a race like Claremont, one of the elite development races that also has an ITU attached to it. Yep. Um, so they'll have F1, which is like, kid, I'm, I'm sure I'll get this wrong, but it's something like kids like 10 to 15 with okay. these tiny bikes. It's like these 10 to 12 yeah. year olds riding around and they're, they're just taking these corners like, like pros. I mean, it, it, their handling is just spectacular and it's like no fear at all. And I, I always remember um talking to my friend watching these kids and i'm like they still have no fear because they haven't hit the pavement yet yeah that's how they haven't uh they haven't experienced that uh or the brains <laughs> well, are fully yeah. like alienated or something <laughs> yeah it's like it's almost like this like taint it's like it poisons your mind a little bit and then you have to like go through this whole process of washing it out and like getting that confidence back and all that kind of stuff but not washing it out totally. Because... No, it's there's a little bit of stain always always left. Yep, yep, it's a little healthy. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what what do you think? I, I think often, like, when we talk about crits um, from all, all the way from the bottom and then into the pros, I think a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, crashes happen because people are inexperienced. Mm. And you know, I, from doing the EDRs, which is for people not familiar, which is, it's an amateur draft legal race for people trying to become professional triathletes. There's only a few of them. I know I was definitely inexperienced going into that and we had to do the clinic on learning how to, you know, cycle through and, and doing all these things. Um, but I've had a lot, uh, other people suggest that, you know, inexperience isn't the issue. What do you think causes all the crashes in crits? Like what makes it so dangerous? Yeah, I've definitely heard that hypothesis as well. Mm disagree with that because um uh i think you see these crash crashes happen at all levels i think what happens is that as you get more and more and more experienced as you go from cat five to four to you know three to two to one to pro mm -hmm. you have raced you've gone around more corners you've raced in more pelotons you are a better bike handler and you're more confident and those things almost like the confidence and the skills almost just get equal get um equalized by the more risk that you're taking so it's like if you're i i i think that 
the frequency of crashes continues to be pretty high because people are more confident in their bike handling skills and more comfortable in a pack. And so they're just like getting closer to each other and taking more risks. Um, and you, you know, as evidenced by the, um, guys in the tour de France, like how many of them make it you know, 180 start, right. And by the end of the three weeks, how many are taken out by crashes? Like a third that's mm -hmm. a high rate for the people who are the best bike handlers in the world. Right. And it's always, it's not even like just the, the, um, I just forgot the word. It's not the guys that are, you know, it's the GC contenders. It's not just like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, why did I forget the word? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it is, it's, yeah, it's the top contenders get taken out every single year. Um, and so I think, right. For th that's my understanding is that as you become more and more skilled, you, you, you're going faster, you take more risks and you, you know, your, your comfort gets the best of you. Um, and you're racing more as well, I think. So it, it heightens the, the risks. And I think at the lower levels, the crashes, you know, and, and in, do happen because of kind of poor handling and inexperience, but the, the kind of rate ends up being the same, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like almost just like, um, like an over exuberance or, uh, what's the, what's the word? Brashness almost. Yeah, something like that. And I think not, maybe not even, yeah, I think there's some element of that, but just the nature of, I'll say 50 to a hundred people in close proximity on tiny wheels going 30, 40, 50 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Like it's something and, and there being imperfections in the road and imperfections in someone's attention and it's just going to happen. And it's so many times I've crashed when I was bike racing. I, um, did this tour, um, to nature Valley grand prix. It was like a seven day stage race, you know, with like some of the best cyclists in the world. And I crashed four times in one race, four times. And none of them were my fault or none of them were some, an error that I had made. Right. Um, maybe once I sort of overcooked a turn, but it was big. I fell because somebody in front of me fell and I hit them. So it's mm -hmm. like, that's what you're eliminating mostly in triathlon. Like, in, you know, the circumstance of your crash or others I've seen where people kind of get jumbled up in one another that can happen but because of the nature of non-drafting um you know it's it was more spread out and even in itu it just seems like um people are a little bit more spread out a little bit more by the swim which helps and then i think there's just a little the culture of the racing is just a little more safe it seems like so you're getting fewer you know super dangerous crashes from my understanding right i mean with the itu it almost seems like um you definitely have everybody trying to get together in a peloton or, or the breakaways but it's almost at the same time like some of the girls or guys i guess know okay if i'm back a minute like i'm the best runner in the field like i still have time the, you know the finish line of the bike is not the finish line yeah true. so it's like there's a little bit of more whole race like holistic methodology instead of just the the line's a line. We got to risk everything to make it there by the end of the bike. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The mentality is like a, a shift is a little bit different um, for the ITU. It's just one leg. Um, so I, I'm going to go down uh, a different direction just because this is a personal curiosity. So if you're watching this conversation, you just have to come along for the ride. So I'm curious about your time in France. Um, if you watch the tour, what took you to France? Um, and kind of that that period of your life before before you've gotten here. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, I'd always been a francophile, you could say, ever since I started taking French in um, in middle school. I just loved the culture and the food and the art and the history. I thought it was fascinating, and so I, I did an exchange there when I was fourteen, and I lived with a family in Normandy for a month, and that kind of planted the seed, and I okay. kind of touched with the uh, girl Marion, and then um, yeah, I always knew that either I wanted to study abroad there in college or go and live there after college, and um, while I was, I ended up deciding not to do the semester abroad because I really loved my college experience and I couldn't imagine like taking a semester away from being on that you know campus I loved up at Williams so uh, I 
thought, well, why not have my cake and eat it too? And I can just go live there for a year after college. And I went to the fellowships office at school and said, what can I do to live in France for a year? And they uh, found me um, this French government teaching fellowship. You didn't really need to have too much teaching experience, but you, um, as long as you were game and spoke French pretty well and were willing to teach like elementary schoolers English, then, um, you know, that was, that was the requirements. And so I ended up doing that and, um, got placed in a rural part of France called Lorraine province Mm -hmm. in in a small town. Um, well, a very small town of 3000 people was where my school was, but I was given the good advice to live in the slightly bigger town that was adjacent, which is called Verdun, which people might know for the battle in the world war one, like a million Mm -hmm. Or it was like the German French border, um, you know, front. So yeah, I loved it. It was a real blessing in disguise to be in such a rural area because I made friends um, who, you know, were just so like open to meeting an American and teaching me about their culture and taking me kind of under their wing. Um, and I got to do a lot of traveling throughout the country and rode. Uh, that's where I really discovered um how much I love to ride bikes and it's such a great place to do it there. Everyone, all the drivers are very respectful. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, um, this is something I'm always curious about because, like, uh, if I can remember sufficiently, I'm French. I passed a year to learn the language with an enseignant on Skype. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so I'll back to English, but like, So I spent I spent a year like on Skype with um, a lady from Quebec because I love Montreal. So I decided to learn French because of that. But like my 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 level sucks. And I always feel like a lot of people that just learned language in high school didn't get a chance to practice it. So I'm like, how did like how, how was your high school experience or like school experience learning French like good enough to get you to the point where they're like, yeah, like your French is great. Like, come over and teach English. Oh man, um, you know, I'd always, I've always been like a languages person for sure. I took Latin as well. It sort of helped um, solidify the French, but I think um, also um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty okay with like your your French sounds great enough to me. I think if, if part of <laughs> like <laughs> well, well, thanks. It's, I, I feel like I need to practice a lot more. I'm like it's yeah. Freezing. Yeah. So I think part of my secret is that I'm I'm pretty confident and I just like start talking and it just comes. Um and uh so yeah, not afraid, even though even if I have to like talk my way around something because I don't uh-huh. know the right vocab words. Um and then I think keep like you're saying practice is huge. I, I practice like any chance I can get. Um, and, and I have, I remember after I'd done that exchange in ninth grade and my French was pretty good after coming home from a month of it, mm-hmm. living with this family who didn't speak much English. And, um, uh, I would like speak to, uh, tourists in the, um, on the street that I saw to try to keep it up. I write letters to my, um, pen pal. And even now, like in the hospital, um, if I see a patient who, um, is from like Ivory Coast or Senegal or, mm-hmm. Haiti, or, um, I try to speak to them in French, and I say, oh, I'll go interview that patient because I speak French, <laughs> you know, keep it up, and um, we have a, um, uh, my fiance also speaks French, so we kind of, well, uh, that's, that's super convenient, <laughs> yeah, not that we speak it to each other really that much, but we do have, um, when he was studying abroad there, he made a friend in Paris who now lives in New York, so we have them over often, and mm-hmm. uh, so that kind of helps too, but yeah, I think, Practice is certainly um, the key, and then trying to go to the we go to France like you know I've been a couple times, um, and since then so that helps too to kind of reinvigorate your um, skills and movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's always like oh, my my difficulty is always trying to find something that's like the correct level because I mean it's easy enough to pick up a French movie, but then it's like okay a lot of this vocabulary and the speed is you know well beyond my listening abilities yeah so true. that's you know right. that's some of the like difficulty oh. yeah that is tough <laughs> what would i almost well, like i've got a fair number of other questions i guess i can ask you um so something i'm curious about is like with all the traveling like be- between med school and traveling for racing and in all 
all that kind of stuff. Like I know most people have kind of stress related to travel, even if you're just sitting on a plane. Mm. It's like, do you have any strategies or like, do you have any like tips, I guess, on how to deal with like, you know, getting ready to, to go race and then coming back and, and like fitting all that in without just being burnt. Mm. Yeah. Um, like have a packing list. Um, use the same like bags if you can and put things in the same places. Just like having routine, I think helps a lot. Um, I do like I, when I use my bike box, I like pack it in the same way and put mm-hmm. things like the same places I think that helps um as far as the traveling itself um yeah I guess I'm not super stressed out about it I kind of I find it like it's sort of reserved time when you're on the plane to like take care of things you didn't have a chance to do when you were back home I kind of like um or read when you're like have this protected time which is nice um but yeah, I think, yeah, control all the things that you, you know, make it, make it routine as much as you can, you know, no fly from the same airports over and over. I got like so good at renting cars from Atlanta. Cause I was like, I raced in Augusta and Chattanooga and I was like, mm-hmm. the rental car places, I, this is not stressful. Cause I know where the bus to get the rental car places. I know where the gas station is, you know, as much as you can make your life easier because of those like routines. I think that's, um, makes it a whole lot less stressful and like bringing your own food always, um, uh know like knowing where the water fountains are making sure you fill up stuff like that um mm. is uh much we yeah keeping things normal for you and um yeah i mean of course sometimes you know your flight gets delayed and you don't get in until 3 a.m and you have to go to class the next day at eight you know that happens but you kind of have to you know those are the times when you take the you know 60 dollar cab to get home quick so you kind of have to parse it out <laughs> Yeah, kind of like Atlanta for you. Philadelphia is like anytime I'm a lot of times I'm racing. If I'm headed out somewhere, somehow I end up being routed through Philadelphia. So I'm like, <laughs> like that's my airport. Like I, I know where the food court is. Like I know which wing I need to go to. There you go. So it's like that. That's something that's planned. Yeah, but the plan is like big. You know, at least for me, keeping the stress down. Like, all right, before I get on the plane, like. I've got my uh, compression socks on and like I got to fill my water bottle up and I've got everything I need. And um, yeah, yeah, doing that checklist. Yeah. I don't want to bounce back because I like, I don't want to miss this. I have like such a hodgepodge of questions for you because that's the nature of like smart athletes. They do a little bit of everything. But um, (laughs) I want to talk about your, I I think you did, uh, you're the lead researcher for concussion research. Is that correct? Um, I did, I've done a a bunch of concussion research. Yeah. Um, and I worked with, um, mostly a neurologist who does, um, that's one of his like primary areas, areas of research and then sort of a team of, um, of sports medicine providers who, um, were kind of team physicians, uh, as well. So I kind of, I had, um, a couple projects that I worked on both like, uh, epidemiology, kind of characterizing the sports related concussions that happen among athletes at Columbia, where I'm a student, um, you know, sort of Ivy league D1 program. And Mm -hmm. then, um, there was an MRI study we did like, um, uh, having athletes undergo brain scans after their concussion to try to look at, you know, minor changes that go on. And, um, yeah, another study I did looking at, um, the rates of like, orthopedic or musculoskeletal injury that happened like in the period following concussion and see if there's any if there's some there's some hypothesis there that you know your balance and coordination might be off or you know you're kind of not fully recovered and more prone to getting other injuries um so yeah that, that was what i did in my these two years in those two years where um i took extra time in med school so okay so the, so the last one was you're, so you're basically trying to figure out whether these other correlation or causation, I guess really correlation, because you can't necessarily prove the causation at that point. <laughs> um, we all know that's a, <laughs> that's a no-no with research. Yeah. Um, so it's trying to prove the correlation between like a higher risk of musculoskeletal injury in 
people with concussions? Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's, um, we're, you know, of course, we don't know that much about what actually happens during a concussion. We know that it's a brain injury, but we really don't know a good way to measure whether it's happened or not, whether that's by an image or a blood test or whatever. We don't have a good clinical, we don't have a good diagnostic tool. So really right now it's like clinical diagnosis. Like, oh, did you, you, um, have a headache and you have dizziness and you probably have a concussion. So I think researchers are, um, yearning to find other ways to characterize concussion and, mm-hmm. um, and one sort of hypothesis is that, man, when these athletes are returning to play, it seems like they're getting hurt more than they would otherwise um, mm-hmm. and not have the concussion. And is there really a link there? So that was like what we were trying to look at. And it does seem like there is some link there and but we don't know. We don't know what's causing that. Is it because the kids who are getting concussion are also more likely to get an injury because they're injury prone in general? That's possible too. Right. Control for that. But um, yeah, it's a really fascinating disease and um really we know so so little and so there's a lot of room for um breakthroughs in the field well it was like i mean it seems like almost a like a hyper focus on it now for good reasons um so i'm kind of curious do you know anything about like so so i like i watch a lot of soccer i don't i mean you played soccer i don't know how much you actually still watch yeah a little bit um, but there's so there's a the concussion protocol that like the trainers come out and check if there's a head injury and they have those like they run the athlete through some kind of protocol. I mean, I don't know what it is. Do you know anything about that? If, if, if there's such a hard time, like actually diagnosing that, like, do you know anything about what they're doing or, or what kind of reliance that like reliability that has? Yeah. So I think what they're probably doing is what's called a SCAT and it's like the sideline concussion assessment tool, SCAT. Okay. And um, it comes is like a little card that you you know you can have and whip it out and you ask all these different questions. There's like a set of questions called the Maddox questions that ask you you know um, who's the opponent we're playing, what position are you, um, what happened in the last play, and it's kind of to see how good your recent memory is because that can be a mm-hmm. common cause a, a common symptom of concussion. And there's also like a checklist of different symptoms you might be feeling. So it asks you you know do you have any current right now do you have headache nausea did you vomit you know do you have tingling sensation you know all these symptoms Mm -hmm. and um it asks you to repeat numbers um after the examiner has said them so it says please you know repeat after me nine four zero two eight and then after he says nine four zero two eight and if you, you can't do them you get minus points and it does have some validity um in serving as a diagnostic tool for concussion so if you have a low scat score it is a high likelihood that you have a concussion and they typically pull you out of the play and mm-hmm. this done you know I, I mentioned i was considering you know sports medicine and so i shadowed um uh team physicians on the sidelines of uh, football game mostly football game mostly and um and saw this done and i think i think it you know it is a tool i think it helps the provider, the doctor usually, or the athletic trainer, um, to give some quantitative measure to what they're seeing in the athlete. I think often what you see is that they, that the provider knows what they want to do. They know, okay, this kid has a concussion. Um, we just need to like, if, but if we show him he scored 27 out of 50, he's going to be more likely to um, be amenable to being pulled from the game. I think right, instead of just making a, like a, Gut check call or what seems like a, a gut check call. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, there are a couple of tools like that that are, are really useful um, and, you know, more to come. I think people would love to have like some sort of, you know, sweat test or blood test or like something you could do on the spot. Um, but I think we're pretty far from, from that at this point um, or at least, you know, some sort of quick, easy, you know, if you can't touch your finger to your nose and to your toe or something, you know, something yeah. else but we're, yeah i think it's uh it's it's very it's complicated and nuanced and we're, we're not quite there okay so I'll, I'll give you this one last question this is a question i ask everybody because it's so varied um it's always good to get different responses but if you could only eat one thing for recovery for the rest of your life what do you choose Ooh. 
Um, that's pretty easy actually for me. Um, so <laughs> I'm, uh, I love to make my own pancakes and, um, my fiance calls them CC cakes because they're not really like, there's no recipe. I like okay. where I wanted them. Like depending on if I'm making them for someone else, like I might kind of modify, but, um, yeah. So, and I love to eat that. Like after I come back from a big swim or like whatever and run in the morning, I always uh, make like pancakes and eggs, real Vermont maple syrup. So definitely CC cakes. Um, <laughs> so, so what, I mean, what makes them different, I guess? What I like, yeah, I throw in there. Okay, so it depends on the mood I'm feeling, but often okay. like the special, I'll always put like usually whole wheat flour. Um, uh, and then, but sometimes I'll throw in like some, um, I have this um, like vanilla protein powder I put in there. It tastes really good. Mm -hmm. Protein pancake. Sometimes I'll put in like um, wheat bran or. Um, you know, and I'll put in nuts and raisins, sometimes vanilla extract, sometimes almond extract, which most people think is disgusting, but I love it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, um, nuts, like berries, you know, you name it, I can throw it in there. So, so it's just like basically whatever you want is the, the whatever like, I want. essence of it. Yeah, whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> Even that it turns out, as long as you put like some sort of flour-ish, you know, it doesn't need to be all all flour, but some flour, some like leavening, like baking powder or something, mm -hmm. and then like egg and, you know, either like yogurt or milk, um, to, it like turns like into basically a pancake-y form, you know? It's like, if you'd think sometimes they'd come out like totally flat or not, you know, just like cardboard or something, but that never happens. It's kind of magic. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to try that out. I, I don't know that I'm like quite as impromptu as that in the kitchen, although I guess I, I wish I could be. Yeah. So maybe it's like, like you said earlier, you just like, you just gotta dive in. Yeah, just dive in. Just start throwing stuff in. <laughs> So, so uh, Cecilia, if people want to follow you, get in touch with you, kind of see what kind of antics you're up to, where yeah. should they go? Yeah, for sure. Um, I am not the best at my social media, I have to admit. I, I sort of blame that on my other busy life. Um, it's not a great excuse. But um, no, I do have a website. It's uh, my name, CeciliaDavisHayes.com. Um, update that with some regularity. And uh, and then I've got an Instagram also, CeciliaDavisHayes, um, which I post race uh, photos and stuff and results on. So yeah, check me out there. Sounds great. Thanks for coming on today, Cecilia. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to pleasure to speak with you.